0: There was a story that made the rounds a lot around the time of 9-11, and it came from the Native American tradition. Probably many of you heard it at the time. The story was of a young boy who had gone to school one day and had a very hard time because his classmates were picking on him, being hard, and giving him a lot of difficulty. He came home from school disturbed and he related the story to his grandfather and said that he wanted to go back and uh, fight with the other kids who had picked on him. And he asked his grandfather what he thought he should do. And the grandfather said, oh, I I know this place well. He said, I have had my same struggles all through this life. The grandfather said, it's though there are two wolves living inside me. One of them is angry, enjoys hatred, and wants to seek vengeance. But the other wolf is kindly, full of concern for people, and wants to find harmony with everyone, even those who have hurt me. They struggle inside for my heart. Each one tries to dominate and wants to win. And the young boy said, so grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather said, the one that I feed. I like this story, but not only does it have a lot of relevance for our life and for spiritual life in general, but also because the vocabulary is very similar to languages the Buddha used describing uh, the course of our spiritual journey. The Buddha talked often about how our journey unfolds By starving the hindrances, those five difficult energies that Winnie talked about last week, and feeding what are called the factors of awakening. So I want to talk tonight about these positive qualities within us. That it's the purpose of our practice to feed and to make grow as we simultaneously weaken or starve the hindrances so that they tend to fade, uh, fade away. There are these seven qualities that the Buddha talked about, and he gave the name the seven factors of awakening. You may have also heard them by the term the seven factors of enlightenment. Um, The root of the word in Pali is bodhi. Bodhi comes from the same root as Buddha, and you know it means to awaken, so this translation of enlightenment is a strange westernism, but really the, the word in Pali clearly points to waking up, awakening. So I'm going to use the term, the, the factors of awakening. We shape our minds through cultivating these seven wholesome qualities through the practice that we're doing as we weaken the afflictive forces, you could call it the hindrances or the kilesas, the taints. This is how the meditative journey unfolds. This is how our spiritual path unfolds in this tradition. So these seven factors, um, lead us to awakening and describe the mind that you might say is perched on the edge of awakening they are capable of great depths of development. There may not be a limit to the development of these seven qualities. We get a sense of that potential when we meet uh, great teachers who have developed these qualities a lot. I mentioned the other night this Thai teacher, Ajahn Jimnian, who has come to Spirit Rock many times. I'm sure we'll, we'll have him again. He was a great concentration prodigy when he was a child but he also has a lot of insight and has developed his mind through vipassana as well as samatha practice so he said uh, once a few years ago talking about the development of his own heart and mind he hasn't had any anger in 25 years and it, it seemed like that when you meet him that's that's a great development and the other uh, teacher that impresses me a lot, impressed me a lot in this regard, was Deepa Ma. Deepa Ma was an Indian woman from Bengal who trained in Burma with uh, great teachers there and then um, studied under Anagarika Sri Manindra, Joseph's first teacher, for, for many years. And by the time that I met her, she was probably about 60, And her first visit to the United States was around 1980. Um, And I got to spend a month looking after her when she came to Massachusetts. So I got to see her both in her teaching role and also uh, behind the scenes. And in both roles, she seemed uh, the same. And uh, I was especially interested in watching outside the meditation circle. She brought with her her daughter, whose name is Deepa. Deepa Ma is just a name that means mother of Deepa. So Deepa came, and Deepa's son, Rishi, who was four years old at the time. And Rishi was kind of a little whirlwind when he was four. So what was fun is we would take them out shopping you know, in the nearby town and go through shopping malls because they wanted to buy clothes and sheets and bedding and so on to take back to India. You could get higher quality stuff here. So we'd be going down the aisles of the department stores and Rishi would be kind of running out front and pulling hangers down and clothes would be flying all over the floor. And there's generally just chaos in his wake. And then Deepama would be running behind him, trying to put things right and hopefully slow him down. This little 60 year old woman in her white robes, flapping behind her as she ran down the aisle of the department store. And there was always a little grin on her face. And I thought, if she can laugh at trying to control a four-year-old in an American department store, that's good integration. <laughs> Deepa Ma had that kind of unflappable quality. And then in the Dharma seat, you got a sense of her, her tremendous inner strength. She's one of the strongest people I've ever known. Joseph Goldstein would sometimes go to visit her And she would say, oh, you look like you've been busy. I think you need to sit for a couple of days. But she didn't mean sit and walk and sit and walk. She meant sit down for two days and don't get up. That was her idea of sitting for a couple of days. She was teaching at IMS one time in a fall retreat and people were always struck by her presence. She had a very strong um, emanation. So they asked her, well, what's in your mind? Well, you know, sort of what's going on? They're trying to get a handle. What's going on in there? What's in your mind? She said, there are only three things in my mind. There's loving kindness, there's concentration, and there's peace. That's it. That's a pretty beautiful mind. That's what she was like. She sort of radiated all those qualities. There's a lovely biography of her out that's just entitled Deepama, and I found that women practitioners especially relate very strongly to her. because We don't have a huge number of teaching figures, women teaching figures in this tradition, and she is a really wonderful one to relate to, so I really recommend that book to you all. So these are the qualities that that we grow and can grow to uh, a great extent. The Buddha made, as you know, a lot of lists. There are a lot of lists of the unwholesome qualities of mind. There are a lot of lists of the beautiful qualities of mind. But I would say for meditators, this is maybe the most important list of qualities of mind. Of course, in the beginning, it's really important to get to know the hindrances. List that Winnie talked about earlier uh, last week. As the retreat progresses, you gain more facility at working with the hindrances. Those become, you know, a little less important as the retreat goes on. And you start to move into these beautiful states of mind, you know, with more frequency. And then the list that gives the best map of these beautiful states of mind for a meditator on, on this journey is the list of the seven factors of awakening. So I hope you will um, regard them as, as great tools on your journey. I kind of regard them as the meditator's best friend because these are the forces in the heart and mind that will carry us to awakening, carry us to liberation. This is from the Buddha. They lead to awakening. Therefore, they're called factors of awakening. Very sensible. I'll just mention what they are and then I'll talk about each of them in a little more detail. The seven are mindfulness, investigation, energy rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. They are all described as maturing in release. That is, when we first encounter them in our practice, they're, they're small growths. Our practice in the initial stages is dominated by the hindrance forces, and especially desire and aversion. And as these factors of awakening come through, they're small in the beginning and they look weak. It's easy to overlook them. But as we continue to cultivate them, they grow up and they grow stronger. And when they mature, their result is release or freedom or liberation. This is their, uh, their function. It's their destination. This is from the Buddha also. Just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too when a practitioner develops and cultivates the seven factors of awakening, she slants, slopes, or inclines to nibbana. That's the only way they go, is toward the unconditioned or release or freedom. So these can be understood in two ways they are the forces that take us there, but they are also, when they're um, seen together, when they're brought to maturity and in balance, they're a description of the mind that is poised at the door of awakening or liberation. It's not within our power to determine when that moment of uh, awakening or release happens. That's not a willed possibility beyond our control. That's considered a moment of grace uh, based on our accumulation of wholesome qualities and wisdom. But the preparation of the mind that comes into that territory is what we can do. That is our role as meditators, to prepare the mind to bring it into the territory of awakening, and then to see if that moment of release can happen. So the seven factors of awakening are all conditioned states that we develop through our meditation practice. It's not that we exactly control them, but we understand what causes them to arise and grow stronger. In fact, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha includes these seven states and says that we should know um, when they arise and how they arise. So within that Satipatthana Sutta, that foundational text of our meditation, the Buddha says, we need to understand these factors, how they're experienced, and how they come into being, how we can strengthen them. So that's what I'd like to uh, talk about tonight. I'm going to present them uh, this evening in a sequence because that's the way the Buddha presented them. One leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. So they can be understood that way and that's helpful. But also be clear that it's not that you first cultivate one and only when it's strong do you begin to cultivate the next and only when that's strong do you cultivate the next. They also work to support each other. So there's a way they're also circular. So this sequential understanding is helpful, but just know that it's also happening. All of them are um, arising together, really. The first factor is mindfulness, which is what we've been talking a lot about. It's considered the one that starts this sequence rolling, and it's also the one that holds the sequence in balance. The next three factors Investigation, energy, and rapture are arousing factors, sometimes called energizing factors. They pick energy up. The last three are calming factors, calm, concentration, and equanimity, or pacifying factors. They serve to uh, calm the energy. So the balancing act is really between the arousing factors that bring energy up and the pacifying factors that settle energy down. So we'll talk about that uh, balancing as we go. Mindfulness is the one that keeps them in balance. So that what th- we're aiming at when they come together is a mind that has this combination of energy and peace. And that's the kind of mind that is really ripe for insight. You know, liberating insight along the way and liberating insight at the moment of opening to the unconditioned. So when we make a comment, for instance, as we often do in the meditation instructions, find in your posture a balance of tranquility and alertness. It's this same balance that we're pointing to. We look for it in the body because it also uh, comes into the mind, expresses through the mind. So I'll talk about each of these in a little more detail. The first is mindfulness. I don't know if we've quite defined it yet, but I'd like to offer this as a a definition. Mindfulness is understanding what our experience is in this moment. This is a fairly simple activity, and this is what gets the whole train going. So that means that in any moment of experience, if you just ask yourself what's happening now, and you answer that question at reference to one of the six sense doors, you're activating mindfulness. I'm breathing in. I'm breathing out. I'm experiencing a sensation of stabbing. I'm having a mood of uh, joy. I'm noticing a thought arising related to the future. That's all that mindfulness is. And that gets the whole thing rolling. We've talked a lot about mindfulness, so I'm not going to say a lot about it tonight. But just to mention that as we start to pay attention to our moment-to-moment experience, then what tends to happen is we get interested in it, or we get curious about it, or we want to know it uh, more deeply. That kind of interest is what leads to the second factor of awakening called investigation. Investigation in Pali is the word dhamma uh, vichaya, vichaya means investigation. Dhammas, in this sense, I take as phenomena. So it's the investigation of phenomena of, of mind and body. Now, when we say investigation in the West, we often think of it as a, a verbal or conceptual turning over. Well, let me think if I have to investigate it, that means I have to think about it a lot. I have to drum up a lot of thoughts and a lot of concepts and turn them over. That's not what's being pointed to with investigation. Investigation emphasizes a non-conceptual awareness. So the better way to think about it is that investigation draws our attention closer to our experience so that we can feel it, let's say, more intimately. Intimately. That's how we investigate. Not by thinking about the experience, but by taking an experience like the breath, moving the attention closer to it so that mindfulness knows it better, knows it more closely, knows it in more detail, knows it more thoroughly, feels it more directly. When this happens, there's a... um, there's quite a lovely movement that happens in the mind. We have a natural affinity for the present when we get interested enough to get close to something. You know, a simple example. I came up for tea tonight. I got to the dining hall just before tea time and there was, I looked up toward the meditation hall and there was a small herd of deer grazing on the lawn out there. And then further up the hillside, the late afternoon sun was casting those long shadows and that kind of golden light on the hills all the way up to the ridge. And it was just a very beautiful scene. And of course, you know, our spirit rock deer are different. They're not like the deer in the rest of of Woodacre. These are really cooled out deer. And uh, what you'll notice is you can get fairly close to these deer and they don't get afraid. And I, I think it's the result not of genetic traits passed along, because we have deer at our house 10 minutes from here who are spooked much more quickly than these deer, but by being around people who are uh, peaceful, moving slowly, and non threateningly. So there was this lovely group of six deer just grazing, you know, very slowly and meditatively out on the lawn. And I I was just kind of transfixed by the sight. You know, I just stood at the entrance to the dining hall for a while just watching them because it was so beautiful. So when the interest is there, the curiosity is there, the mind mind is naturally drawn to closer contact with what we're feeling or observing. It's a natural process. And then you get a feeling for... Uh, This other word the Buddha used a lot for the kind of attention we give in meditation. It's often translated as wise attention. I might rather call it careful attention, but the Pali word is Yoniso Manasikara. Manasikara means attention. So Yoniso is the Pali word that's being translated as wise, or I would say careful. Now, the root of this word, yoniso, is yoni. And if you know Hindi or Pali or Sanskrit, this refers to the womb. So probably a more literal translation of this word is womb-like attention. People sometimes criticize Buddhism for being too masculine or too patriarchal but in the Buddha's uh, elaboration of this very central kind of meditative attitude, he calls it a womb-like attention. So what's involved in that image of being womb-like? Well, the, the womb is embracing, is sheltering, it's n- nurturing and holding with care and, uh, and love. So this is the kind of attention we're asked to bring to our experience. Mindfulness in its fullness is said to be without greed, hatred, or delusion. Aloba, adosa, amoha. So this word adosa, it just literally means without hatred, but the Buddha often uses negative language to, to imply the beautiful quality of it. So within this womb-like attention, there's a sense of the absence of hatred, which is actually pointing to the presence of loving kindness, the opposite of hatred. So I think of mindfulness as having intrinsically this warm, nurturing, womb-like quality that establishes um, an embracing kind of relationship with our experience. So investigation can deepen this this relationship of mindfulness to the experience that we're with. Investigation is one of the factors that can be strengthened very directly by your effort in the present moment. So let's look at some simple examples of that. Let's say you're experiencing the breath and you want to heighten this feature of investigation. How could you do it? I think James led a guided meditation the other morning that went through a few different ways to bring a greater sense of interest and investigation. I'll just mention a couple here. One is, with every in-breath, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. With every out-breath, there's a beginning, middle, and an end. Can you see each of those three stages in an in-breath and an out-breath. When you look to find them, you're heightening investigation and you're bringing the, the awareness closer to the object of the breath. Here's another suggestion. Saida Upandita, who's a very uh, demanding meditation teacher, would ask his students at the beginning of a retreat as they were first coming into relationship with the breath, A question like this, when you breathe in, can you notice three distinct sensations in that in-breath? And when you breathe out, can you notice three distinct sensations that are part of that out-breath? In other words, we might think as we begin, an in-breath is one sensation, but if we look more closely There are lots of sensations on an in-breath. An in-breath lasts a few seconds. And whether you follow it at the abdomen or the nose, you'll feel a lot of little dancing particles of sensing coming alive and passing away moment by moment in an in-breath, moment by moment in an out-breath. So, can you find and name three distinct sensations in an in-breath, three distinct sensations in an out-breath? And then he'd say, I want you to report them to me in the next interview. (laughs) So you're really, you're going to be on the spot in a few days. Believe me, you get motivated to look closely. And then you'd come back and you'd report to him your three sensations. And then he'd say, okay, next interview I want you to tell me one more that you haven't seen before. So again, one is motivated to look closely. If we're investigating our emotions, we might look at sort of three aspects of an emotion. The the sort of mood or coloring that it has in the the mind, you know, the way joy tastes different than uh, contentment, the way that irritation tastes different than frustration. So look at the tone or the, the mood directly look at its expression in the body. If the emotion's strong, you'll feel it somewhere in the body. And the third is to look at what kinds of thoughts come with an emotion. because Emotions tend to generate thoughts that are like them. So those are ways of investigating the emotion. Look at those three aspects of the experience and get close to each one. This quality is one of the most direct expressions of the faculty of wisdom. You know, we often talk about our practice as being in the end, all about wisdom. It's really what uh, we activate that enables us to understand our experience. And it's the understanding that frees us. Experiences come and go. But wisdom grows. And the more wisdom grows, the more we understand what's happening and the less we get caught. So wisdom is really, in a way, the, um, the high person on the totem pole in, in Buddhist practice. It's the liberating factor. It's what we're really working toward. But how do you activate it? You know, what is wisdom? It's kind of an abstract concept. It's not conceptual either. It doesn't come from thinking about things. Insights are its expression, but insights are not always there. They come when they come and they're not always there and you can't force them by thinking about them. That doesn't work. So how do we support or activate wisdom? Investigation is one of the most direct ways because we're asking the question, let me know more about what this experience is. Let me see more deeply into it. Let me understand it um, more thoroughly. So we're activating that wisdom factor um, immediately with the growth of investigation. So as you develop this quality of investigation, one of the things you'll notice, it generates an even greater sense of interest in what we're experiencing, and with that greater sense of interest comes a kind of alertness. It's kind of like the mind wakes up. There's a brightness of energy, and we want to look uh, even more closely, and that kind of waking up quality and the added alertness that comes leads to the next factor, which is energy. Investigation brings with it the arising of energy. Energy is a direct translation of the Pali word virya, but there are many translations of this word. None of them quite hit the mark. So let's talk about, uh, talk around the word by the different translations. Another translation that's often used is effort. And then another popular translation is energetic effort because people couldn't decide whether it's energy or effort, so they just shoved them together. And some of the other words I like to translate uh, Virya are courage, ardor, and my current favorite, enthusiasm. When we're enthusiastic about our meditation, we give energy to it. And that picks up our practice a lot. So from all of these, you'll you'll get a sense of what's involved In virya, it is a kind of energy. It can be both of body and of mind, and you'll experience it both of body and of mind. It's the energy that keeps us awake and refreshed and coming to sittings. It's the energy that makes us want to look closely. But it's energy not in a random way, energy that's directed toward the path. So it reflects this quality of mind uh, as well. This is from the Buddha. Energy is aroused for the abandoning of unwholesome states and the development of wholesome states. One is strong, firm, not shirking from the responsibility of cultivating wholesome states. This quotation gives a sense of the direction of energy. It's toward wholesome states. But it also gives a sense of this um, attitude behind virya. Virya comes from the root vira, V-I-R-A in Pali, which means hero. There is associated with virya, a heroic element. Because the work of abandoning the unwholesome and cultivating the wholesome isn't easy. As you know, the unwholesome has tremendous momentum. You know, through the repetition of our uh, karmic patterns of mind for years and years, if not lifetimes, these unwholesome tendencies of greed, aversion, and delusion have a lot of built-up momentum behind them. And as we come into direct relationship with them, we're impacted by that. Again and again, moment after moment. And in the midst of that, we need to develop the wholesome qualities So this is the challenge um, of our practice. It's not simple. So virya is the element in the mind that lets us, you know, come back into that relationship moment after moment and transform the unwholesome states that we may meet into the wholesome qualities, the beautiful qualities that, that are our potential. Virya depends a lot on our level of motivation. None of you would have put in the work you have if your motivation wasn't strong. So when I think about motivation, I like to think about other fields of activity also. And one that, you know, I think about a lot is professional athletes. The sport that I'm particularly addicted to is tennis. I love the game, I've played it for a long time, I like to talk about it, I like to watch it on TV, I like to watch it live, and I'm really interested in the people who excel at it. And if if you look at you know the top players of the game today like Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, they are in superb athletic shape. They can go out and on a hot sunny day run around the court for like 5 hours fast, you know, battling against each other in the heat of competition. Federer hardly looks like he sweats. And Nadal looks like he could go 5 more hours, you know, and it wouldn't bother him a bit. So they have this superb conditioning. It's very impressive. They've also, you know, gained a lot of money from that. <laughs> Federer's earnings are probably, I don't know, 20 million or or more. When I was uh, especially following the the pro circuit, Andre Agassi was one of the players at the top, and so I would read about his training regimen. He lives in Las Vegas, which, as you know, is a desert and is very hot most of the year. And he had a training coach who came from University of Nevada at Las Vegas who was a tough coach. So this guy would take Agassi out into the hills outside Las Vegas and would make him run sprints up the hills in the heat of the day, to the point where Andre would vomit from the fatigue and the exertion of it. And when he reached that point, his coach would say, okay, that's good for today. Now we can go down and you can have a shower. But that's what Agassi would do to train for the, the level of athleticism he wanted to have. But of all the athletes that impressed me in this way, I have to say the the most impressive are the professional cyclists, especially when Lance Armstrong was riding. I have a little family affinity there. Um, He won the Tour de France seven times, and I loved watching him ride because he was was so good at what he did, which was one of the most strenuous feats that, that I think people do. So the Tour de France goes for about a month, in July and August, over some of the highest mountains in France and the Alps and the Pyrenees. And these guys have to get on their bikes day after day for the month. They have a few rest days, but it's basically day after day for 20-some days, and ride as hard as they can against other of the top athletes in the world. And they're basically, you know, they're riding their hearts out when they do that. Lance said that the reason he was good at riding is because he, he had an abnormally high uh, ability to withstand pain. He said that every time he got on a bike to ride in a race, he knew he was going to be facing eight hours of nonstop pain. But that was his sport and that's what he did. That's what all of them do in writing that way. So, what are they writing for? Fame and fortune. I mean, how does that compare to liberating the heart and mind? (laughs) That's like small stakes compared to what we're doing. But each of us, you know, is making that same kind of heroic effort in our way. Every time we come in here and we're willing to meet the physical pain or the restless mind or the pain of the heart, you know, that may be years and years or decades old. We're exhibiting that same kind of heroic quality with our meditation. Sometimes meditation encourages us to really take this heroism, um, To our, to our limit, I came on one three-month course at IMS, and it was a year that the teachers were all practicing and studying with Sayada Upandita, this demanding teacher from Burma that I mentioned, and they were teaching in his style. So we were told when we entered the retreat that uh, we were expected to sleep four hours a night, not more, and we should be doing continuous mental noting for the 20 hours that we were awake. So I was a little bit taken aback because I I was used to sleeping six hours a night in retreat. I could cruise pretty well at six, but I'd never tried to get down to four. And I did mental noting some of the time, but I had not been used to doing it all 20 other hours. So I thought, okay, this is the instruction. I'm going to do it. And then every day in the interview, my teachers would ask me, how many hours did you sit? How many hours did you walk? and how many hours did you sleep? And so I have to keep track of that and report to them. So after many sleepy sittings and sleepy walkings and even sleepy standings, (laughs) I did manage to get my sleep down to four hours a night. And then I found that I I could cruise at that level. I mean, it was hard work, right? But the sleep was not a problem after a certain time. I'd go to bed at 11, I'd get up at 3, and I got kind of used to that rhythm. And then I did the noting practice very continuously in the other 20 hours. And I have to say it was one of the most um, fruitful periods of meditation practice that I've done. It was definitely the hardest, but I also learned a tremendous amount. Some things I don't think I could have learned any other way. So it was very valuable. It was a challenge to my uh, level of energy It was not easy, but now that I look back, um, I'm really glad that I did it. It was very fruitful. So that's one model of virya, of the heroic approach to practice. But there's another kind of virya that is simply about uh, perseverance. Energy that simply goes on and on and on will also reach the goal So it doesn't have to be this most intense kind of all-out effort, but simply doing our practice steadily on and on and on will also reach the goal. There's a great figure in uh, Tibetan history named Milarepa, who I'm sure you've heard of, a great 11th century yogi, spent most of his time out in the wilds and caves, living on nettles, dressing very simply in a white robe and doing inner heat practice to stay warm. Milarepa had a couple of very famous disciples, uh, Gampopa and Rechungpa, both of whom went on to found great schools in Tibetan Buddhism. So this story is about Gampopa. He was completing a period of training under Milarepa and had gotten lots of teachings, lots of empowerments, lots of transmissions, and was about to go off on his own and do his own solitary retreat. And uh, very sad to leave his teacher, but he knew that he had to go off to do his practice. So he was taking his leave of Milarepa and started wandering down the mountain path, go off into his own hermitage. And he got partway down, and uh, Milarepa said, wait, come back. Gampopa came back. Milarepa said, there's one more pith transmission that I want to give you. Gampopa was very curious, very eager. Oh, this is really the heart of it. So Milarepa turned around, he turned his back to Gampopa, flipped up the hem of his white robe and bent over, showed him his backside, which was described as being as hard with calluses as the hoof of a camel, (laughs) and then said to Gampopa, this is the secret of my success. (laughs) Persistence in meditation is really what you need. I've only gotten to where I am by meditating with this kind of dedication. So as you go off, please also meditate with this kind of diligence to achieve your own success. So just that carrying forth, carrying on. This is from Sayadaw Utejaniya, the Burmese teacher we've mentioned a few times. Right effort means to keep reminding yourself to be aware. Right effort is persistent effort. It is not energy used to focus hard on something. It is effort which is simply directed at remaining aware. It is not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. For this, you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. Of this perseverance, Bhikkhu Bodhi had a really uh, lovely comment, this is in a book of his on the Eightfold Path, where he said, in order to reach the goal, you only need two things. You need to begin and you need to continue. (laughs) And if you do those two things, the outcome is assured. That's the persistent quality of virya, just keeping going. So as we make our effort, as we exert ourselves in this practice with this bright, um, alert energy. In time, it brings the next quality, which is called rapture. The Pali term is piti. We use the term rapture because it's gotten kind of standardized, but it's an odd word, isn't it? Do you you use it much in everyday conversation? You know, I hardly ever hear this word outside of religious context. So it's a little bit odd, but I think a, a better translation is something like rapt attention or a joyful interest. So this brightness that comes when the energy is there and we're making a connection to our meditation subject, we find a kind of joy in coming into relationship with it. In the beginning, say, when we're with the breath or the body, it just seems like a lot of hard work doesn't seem like it's much fun. But as the interest rises, as the energy rises, over time, this becomes a happy kind of activity. Our relationship to the object starts to light up with some kind of pleasure, some kind of enjoyment as we connect with it. And it's this enjoyment of the focus that is pointed to by the word PT or rapture. So we find that we like being where we're turning our mind. In the beginning, it seems, you know, a lot of work and there, are a lot of things that are way more interesting. But at this point, we like being there with the object. Even the breath, which seems very neutral and not that sexy, starts to seem appealing. There's a teacher in Australia named um, Ajahn Brahm. If you follow Buddhist news, You will have heard of him because last summer he carried out an ordination of a bhikkhuni in the Theravadan tradition. And I think this was the first Western bhikkhuni to to be ordained, to take full ordination, which means 254 precepts for a woman. And it threw the monastic community into a bit of a, a tizzy because it was quite unorthodox. Ajahn Brahm wanted to make a strong statement, and and he did so. And there have been then um, follow-on ordinations of other women in the Bhikkhuni lineage. So uh, he created uh, something of a movement, some momentum. Quite wonderful. So Ajahn Brahm teaches concentration practice on the breath. And one of the phrases that he uses to incline people to that practice he tells them to look for the beautiful breath. When you can discover the beautiful breath in your practice, that I means basically discover the beauty that is with the breath, then your mind will go there naturally, easily, in an unforced way. And this is the quality of rapture, Pt. piti. It's a mental factor. It's born out of our relationship, the mind's relationship to the subject. But it's a quality that has physical expression. So when people are describing rapture or PT, they'll often talk about the energy that comes in the body. It's an arousing factor and it brings up energy in the body. So classically, there are these different descriptions. There's minor PT, which is kind of a trembling all over the skin. Um, There's a momentary PT, which is like a flash of lightning of energy in the body. There's showering PT, which is like waves of energy passing through. There's an uplifting PT, where the body feels very light and as though it could lift up and float away. This is the quality that is responsible for yogis being able to levitate. Do you remember when uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi used to teach levitation? They'd go off into those retreats in Indiana Everybody who wants to come levitate, you know, come for a meditation retreat. I was very skeptical about those, those retreats, especially about the ads. But um, I met someone this summer who was on those retreats, and she said a lot of people were um, bouncing across the hall <laughs> because they had learned to lift. They couldn't quite sustain it, so they'd come back down, but they were moving under the power of this kind of piti. And the Buddhist texts also describe this. So this is what's responsible for levitation. And there's an all-pervading rapture where it, uh, it fills the body. Mostly, this is a pleasant experience. There's the joy of being with the object. And then as the energy comes up, there's a pleasurable quality to it. Uh, it's often paired with this word sukha. You know, in descriptions of the jhana, rapture and pleasure. Fill the body and pervade the body. But in the early stages, as the rapture gets strong, it, the energy is sometimes so strong that it's not pleasant. Uh, it can become a little too intense or even overwhelming at times, and its experience is uncomfortable. There's a little too much of it happening. So, this is kind of the culmination of the arousing cycle of the seven factors of enlightenment. And that overstrong energy of pt is dealt with by the second half of the seven factors as they unfold but i want to explain how that happens the pleasure in being with the object takes away a lot of the mind's restless movements to past and future out of either sense desire because it's already pleasurable or aversion because the current experience is pleasurable So the mind starts to settle based on the the likableness of this present moment experience of rapture. The mind discovers through meditation itself, not through external objects, people, relationships, starts to discover a source of uh, pleasure and happiness. Then it finds its its, um, fulfillment to some extent here and now just through the meditation, that cuts down a lot of the movements out toward pleasure or in reaction in aversion. And so it starts to bring about a settling of the mind in the mind-body experience, a settling within ourselves. This is the development of the next factor, the first of the tranquilizing factors, which is called calm. Mind isn't moving around so much. Things start to calm down, and one's mind settles within the mind-body present. It is this deepening of calm that starts to um, modulate, starts to soften, starts to temper uh, the PT energy if it's gotten too strong, if it's gotten a little too intense. So in this experience of calm, this is not something that happens a lot in most people's daily life. And when meditators come upon this, you know, say for the first time in practice, it's sometimes a little unexpected. So a common reaction is, this is not very interesting. This is kind of boring. I mean, look, a few days ago, you know, I was having um, a lot of strong emotions. I was really processing this old relationship that I hadn't come to grips with before. There was a big opening in the heart that was accompanied by a lot of pain but a lot of release. The energy was up. It was really interesting. I had something to talk about in my interviews. (laughs) And then that all sort of went away and now, well, really, I have to tell, I'm sorry, but there's nothing happening in my practice. So this state of nothing happening is actually kind of an interesting point because it's announcing the, the emergence of the quality of calm. as you probably know, the Buddha said that the state of peace was really a pretty good place to be. So at first it may seem like it's not very interesting because the experience is fairly neutral. And boredom is basically an aversion to the neutral. So we can deal with it, A, by just becoming more comfortable with the presence of the neutral. Or we can deal with it, B, By heightening the quality of investigation to get interested, more interested in what's going on. Boredom is basically a result of not looking closely enough to find interest. So we can work with it in in either of those ways. But mostly we want to start to appreciate the sense of peace that is growing, that we're discovering, and let ourselves simply sink into it and let it continue to enlarge. If we just accept it and settle, it will continue to enlarge by itself. Then it leads into the next of the factors, which is concentration. Concentration, you remember, is this quality of collectedness of mind. So calm comes as we start to find some fulfillment within. Concentration comes as we deepen that willingness to let go of the mind going out and come more and more to collect the energy in the present moment, in our experience of mind and body. This experience of concentration brings a certain quality of strength into the mind. As you've discovered, as you've been uh, exploring it here on the cushion, when we sustain our attention in the present moment for a while, there's something that feels really solid in our awareness. It feels like it's not So easy to be shaken by a passing thought, by a mood, or even by a pain in the body. The much greater steadiness of attention, even as things are changing around us. So the strength of this quality of concentration is is an important thing. In the years before we built the retreat facility here, this, this hall and the residences, this side of the, um, on this side of the road and then the hillside on the other side of the road formed a kind of natural amphitheater. And once every year or two, we invited Thich Han to teach here. And we built a platform for him on the other side of the creek that was high enough that people uh, could see him. And then we would all sit in this natural amphitheater on the ground. And he would be, his voice would be amplified. But we would have like 1,500 people here for a day of teaching from him. And it was quite extraordinary, his presence uh, in this setting. He has such a stillness of body and a slowness of speech that it was as though his stillness cast a spell over the whole 1,500 people on the hillside. The spell that he cast was of concentration. So just by his presence and tuning into it, everybody there just kind of settled in, and the whole crowd became very quiet. And then there's a photo of him taking like almost a 1,000 people from that day long for a walk up the road to the end of the path In those two meadows, silent walking meditation. It was very, very beautiful. So, concentration has two major benefits. One is that it brings with it a sense of well being, the quality of peace and the sense of self sufficiency just feels great. In some ways, it's what we're looking for through meditation, it's one piece of what we're looking for. The other great benefit of it is that when the mind gets still, that is the best foundation for insight to arise. When the mind's moving all over the place, we can't see so clearly. You know, it's like you're on a merry-go-round, spinning round and round and round, and a friend comes up with a newspaper and holds it in front of you and says, can you read it? No. Because you're going by too quickly. But the merry-go-round slows down. You come to a halt in front of your friend. And then your friend says, now can you read the newspaper? Yeah. Well, what does the newspaper say? It says, life is change. If you hold on, you suffer. There's not really any self there in the first place. So just let go. It's concentration that lets us read the news (laughs) and understand that's the way things really are. As we develop this sense of stillness and steadiness, the mind gets stronger. All the changing movements of pleasure and pain that normally create the stirrings in our mind, our human situation basically is we're stirred up by greed and aversion, in reaction to the passing show of pleasure and pain. That's the whole problem. As the mind gets stronger, the passing show of pleasure and pain doesn't make so much impact. And when it doesn't make so much impact, those things actually get less significant. They don't stir us as much. We don't have to care about them as much. And we find that the mind can stay in balance even as the passing show goes on. And this is the last of the seven factors called equanimity. Equanimity is no longer being so moved by the changing factors of pleasure and pain. Equanimity is a very high state of the conditioned states that we can develop. It's the last of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's the last of the ten paramis. It's the last of the Brahmaviharas and it's the last stage in the progress of insight described in the Vasudhi before awakening. You might say that equanimity is the closest conditioned state to the unconditioned. So this is the culmination of the seven factors of awakening. So when all of these are brought together and in balance, then the mind has, has this alert stillness that's really poised either for you know, good mundane insight or for super mundane insight for the opening to the unconditioned. Let me just close with um, two quotations from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, these seven factors of awakening, when developed and cultivated, lead to peace, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to nibbana. They are noble and emancipating. They lead the one who acts upon them to the complete destruction of suffering. Whoever has been liberated, is liberated, or will be liberated in the future, all will do so by overcoming the five hindrances that stain the mind, by firmly establishing their minds in the foundations of mindfulness, and by cultivating the seven factors of awakening in their true nature. So let's just sit for a minute together, please. so we have about 30 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.